0: Brought to you by Prep Matters and the upcoming book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home.
1: You know, I I talk a lot about how college admission is not the finish line. You know, if you're admitted early decision and you find out that you're admitted to school of your choice, it doesn't mean that the next nine months you can slack off because you're going to end up a college freshman and you're going to have to go to classes, you know. And so for me, like, I, it would drive me crazy because I would see college being you know, a prize, right? Like I got in, I did something right. Like they wanted me and therefore, you know, I win. And the reality is that, yeah, if you got into a college, terrific. But don't forget, this is a foundation. It's a building block. College is not the end. When you graduate from college, something else is gonna happen. And college is a stepping stone. It's not a prize, it's not a finish line. And in my experience, the students, frankly, who made the most of high school, particularly senior year, ended up having the best experiences at college because they viewed it as such. How important are standardized tests?
0: Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard?
2: Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. My guest today is Becky Munster-Sabke. She's the former Director of International emissions at Dartmouth College. She's a graduate of Colby College and received her Master's of Arts in Liberal Studies in Creative Writing from Dartmouth. She's also an award-winning monthly newspaper columnist, a blogger, and the author of the popular New York Times op-ed, Check This Box If You're a Good Person. She lives in Vermont with her husband, two toddlers, and a lovely but stubborn Labrador Retriever. You can learn more about her work at beckysabke.com. Becky, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Ned.
2: I really enjoyed this book, and I'm really looking forward to talking uh, to you about that and your and other thoughts as well. So right off the bat, two two points that jumped out to, to me are, one, that we need to teach students to apply to college, not to compete for spots at colleges. And two, that as admissions officers, you and your colleagues evaluated applications, not students themselves. Can you say a little bit more about that and, and how that shapes your advice?
1: Yeah, absolutely and and I'm glad those are two takeaways that stood out from the book because I think you know when writing this book I had I had two goals. Number one was to prove or or at least share that admissions is a business. Their decisions are business decisions. They're not personal decisions. You know, we had thousands and thousands of applicants and yet, you know, very few we met in person. So we were taking them as, you know, their application value. That's 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 what we had um so the first point was just admissions as a business this is business decision and then my second kind of um goal for this book was to help students going through this process this business process still put their best foot forward um since this is the process that it takes to go you know to go to college or university i wanted to help them realize all right this is just an application, but how do I put forth my best application to serve me and to take back a little bit of control of this process rather than just, you know, keeping my fingers crossed that my application will be the chosen one.
2: You make a point in the book that something to the effect of you and your colleagues were not qualified or able to evaluate value and character, right? That again, it's the, it's the application, not the person. And I I think that's it's such a helpful point, certainly for parents to to, to communicate to their kids, because, you know, it, it stings so much when we get told no and feel like, you know, the, there are these wise people with long beards, I suppose, all sort of, you know, you know, surveying the landscape of America and said, mm, you're not worthy. And, yeah. you, you know, and, and I think you, you articulate that really nicely.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, um, being admitted to a college is not a value statement. It doesn't mean that the kid who was admitted in your class to a more selective institution is smarter, wiser, you know, m- more exciting, a better kid, a kinder kid. It, you know, these are decisions that college admissions professionals are making with the information available to them. And so, you know, I'm sympathetic to college admissions professionals because they're all at, at selective colleges, there are only so many seats and so many people wanting to get in. And so they're doing the best they can. And yet, for the students, you know, I I think it's dangerous for us to think that these are value statements. Um they're they're not. They're business decisions.
2: The book you talk about how we were, were, we were recruiters and how we needed or we wanted those application fees, which I, I hadn't ever really thought about the math of application fees. I thought more about it of uh, what does Akil Bellow describe it as rather than being highly selective colleges, trying to be highly rejective colleges. And you know, like, what's the admission rate at Dartmouth this year? Do you know? It was, I yeah. think it was 10% when you're writing the book. Yeah. Do you know it, where it is, it is now?
1: It's lower than 10%, yeah, I don't have the exact number, but I do, I, I mean, and, and what's difficult is there is an argument to recruit more because they want to diversify the class. And so the argument is the more you recruit, the more you know, diverse class that you, you, you have in your pool. However, from where I sit, I, I just found that these, these admit rates at highly selective institutions are insane. And what's the end piece, right? Are we going to be excited when we get down to one percent? What will that mean? Will people even bother? like what you know, they're insane. And so from where I sat, I just think that colleges and universities, I think there's a call, I think there should be a call to them to stop recruiting, you know, people that are already representative in their pool. like let's 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 stop this insanity because the 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 bottom line is not the application fees. It's to become more selective in us New and World Report. Um, and to have the prestige, you know, even US News and World Report aside, it's to have the prestige of being able to say, well, we admitted 5% and this other school admitted 7%, right? And that's insanity. That is such insanity. Um and so I think, you know, if you're if you're a student who is looking at schools and you're looking at these admit rates. Um, you know, it can be very scary. It can be. Yeah. Very yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that as a recruiter, you know, the big intention was to diversify the pools. But what that's turning out to to become is just, you know, inflating these numbers of of, of applicants in our pool to drive down that admission rate to make them, um, you know, even more attractive to students who will therefore, you know, apply the next year. So mm. it needs to stop. It's crazy.
2: When I mean, it's interesting, one of my favorite pieces and that I was a Nick Fallows wrote a wrote a piece um for the atlanta back in 2005 called new college chaos and talking about just this froth of more and more and more and more applications the common app and everything else and you know, all the forces and of course it's it's staggeringly more so more complex more frothy than it was in 2005 and you know in the book that i wrote with my friends a clinical neuropsychologists we looked at the research of a woman named sonia Luthian, who talks about what makes people nuts And so N, novelty, U, unpredictability, T, perceived threat, and then S, low sense of control. And it sure feels like this college admissions process for both people who are sitting in the chair as you were and applicants who want who want who want to, you know, gain admission, that sense of control is low, that unpredictability is low, the perceived threat is low. And it just, you know, <laughs> for colleges that are so worried about all these highly selective kids showing up but really struggling with their mental health issues. Yeah, I I think your point is such a good one that that we do want this diversity, but let's not you know if we already ha- we're already getting folks who meet all the needs that we have, let's not try to get three times as many applicants as we currently have now, in your book, you talked about kind of three priorities of what colleges are really after diversity is one and, and there were two others. Can you talk about those and and perhaps a little bit to how those things are in tension with one another? Yeah,
1: I think you know the business of college is you know it's a business that <laughs> a good intent, I should say, Mm -hmm. right? Because these colleges, first of all, they need, you know, institutions want to last a long time, right? They want to be sustainable, right? But nobody wants to go out of business. No one wants their colleges to close. And so it's complicated and creating a class is complicated and it's very reflective of the particular institution, right? At some schools, sports are a very big thing. At others, you know, music might be their thing. And so creating a class is based on, um, you know some main objectives one is diversifying the class two is keeping the, the institution in business right like how, how do we keep this institution going um and three is you know the financial aid aspect like how how do we make this sustainable from a financial background like how do we make it affordable to students and yet also keep keep our institution running Um, And and that trickles down to the admissions decisions in complicated ways, right? You know, you look at athletes in and of itself, and I handled many of the athletes that that came through the process, and a very good number of students in the class were recruited athletes. They went through a similar yet slightly different process. They still had to submit the same application as all of the other students, except they were able to do so earlier and get feedback and be assured that they were going to be admitted. Um, you know, lots of those students had a similar academic profile to the students we were admitted, some of them do not, right, and we know that this is part of the college athletics admissions system, Um, and, you know, diversifying the class I mean that's something we go back to recruiting it's complicated because what we want to do is reach students who don't have the access to you know the college search process and in order to right, do right. that we need to find these students but the problem is a lot of these students are at schools where the counselors aren't answering the phone they don't have time to invite us to come meet with the students right so how do we access students in places that we we don't have access to and so you know the building of a class is complicated um it's multifaceted and it's controversial for, for mm-hmm. many people and yet You know, it comes down to these institutions are businesses and they want to help their alumni networks stay in business. And so therefore we had to really, you know, think about what is a class for the college and how do we admit students who will enhance that class.
2: Hmm. You know, the sports thing was such an interesting one because to talk about controversy for, you know, for decades now, you know, wringing of hands about the fairness of this, that, the other, including, you know, uh, extra weight given to underrepresented historically underrepresented students. And I think when people think about, um, athletic recruitment the picture that they have in mind is not actually where it is that most of the recruited athletes are actually from highly resourced white wealthy families, not under resourced, you know, African-American kids. Um, And that that I think feel to me feels like a little bit of a dirty little secret that the real, you know, air quotes, affirmative action is actually for, for, for athletes. I I had a, I have a friend who's in, um, who grew, grew up in, in Germany and she said, you know, in Europe, they don't have all these athletics. You don't you don't you just don't have college athletics the way that we do here, and so right. so people are not you know aren't aren't getting that uh, extra help through sports, which is interesting. Right. I just I had no clue about that,
1: yeah, I mean, in my experience, I found that you know the 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 students who were becoming recruited athletes were the students who the coach had access to.
2: oh, interesting point. so it
1: would really vary by coach by sport, you know it it, it would vary. and so the coaches. You know, I'm sympathetic to coaches. Their jobs are on the line, yeah. you know, because of the performance of, you know, college freshmen. Yeah. And I'm sympathetic to them because they're recruiting. They're also running their teams. And they only have so many resources. Some of them have mm-hmm. many, many, many resources. Some of them don't, right? So it really differs by college. It differs by sport. Um, And I do think the diversity of the sports teams are, you know, very much, uh, you know, a reflection of, the same thing can the coach access students outside of kind of the already you know established pipelines
2: yeah yeah well let me pivot away from the the controversy of college and admissions and athletics to make this point your your book is really highly practical i mean from the from the first steps in building the college list to making a final decision even arriving on campus um with lots in between of course can you talk a little bit how you, you the organizing and the writing book helped you understand your your own experience in the admissions world and how and then how it helped you help others
1: yeah that's a great question So I worked in the admissions office for many, many, many years. And when I became pregnant with my first son, I stayed on and I read applications while I was home after maternity leave. And then I wrote this box, if you're a good person, which became a viral op-ed in the New York Times. and, I, and
2: I, <laughs> Can you explain that really quickly to people? Because it's so, it's, it's a great story. It's a beautiful op-ed just because if people need to go and look this up, but I, I love this story.
1: Yeah. And it it was such a surprise to me. It was something I thought about during my career at Dartmouth. Um, we had this recommendation come and it was from a high school custodian and he spoke to the students' intangible qualities, right? This was the student who remembered the custodian's name, even though no one else even bothered to ever ask it. And I think, you know, it really struck me and my colleagues because we we receive so many recommendations from people, you know, oftentimes who know a lot about a student. Sometimes from people who don't know a lot about a student, but their name itself feels like the clout of being a headmaster will help the student's application eventually be successful. And this recommendation was so. Simply written, it talked about the student's character, and it showed us something that we hadn't seen in any other application we received that year. Right, like here's a kid who went out of his way to befriend the high school custodian. Meanwhile, all the other kids are trying to befriend the headmaster for a recommendation. And I, I just, I, it struck me because the the point of it was, what are we trying to teach our kids? Like, what's the mm. end goal here? Like, mm. what are, what are we hoping for in our children? And as I talk about in the book, you know, I, I wrote this book partly to help students get into college, but also to realize that this is a call to action to stop treat, treating college as a prize and to, to start treating it as a stepping stone, right? To take the pressure off a little bit. Like this is, we don't all need to be Ivy cleaners. Um, and so when I wrote that op-ed, I kind of, you know, I wrote it quickly and I thought, oh, you know this feels like a nice thing to write at the end of my admissions career. And I sent it off to the New York Times and next thing you know, it was viral. And I had people reaching out to me, echoing kind of the sentiment of, you know, this this process is making our children mad. And how do we remind them that these little things matter, character matters. And so I decided, I've always been a writer. So I decided I was going to put a couple other chapters together. And this project became almost it almost became a thesis paper that I wanted to write as kind of a, you know, a, a final um, uh, compilation of my career, right? This was, uh, I, I had no intent on really going back to admissions work just because I, I was transitioning to wanting to do more writing and, and raising mm-hmm. a family. I got pregnant with mm-hmm. my second daughter very quickly. And so I decided I wanted to write a book that was, you know, almost more for me just about like, here are the things I learned dealing with the quote unquote elite students, here's what stood out to me. I was a new mom. So we know hormones were flowing and I was thinking about raising my own kids. And what happened was I put it together and I sent along a book proposal and um, the publishers came back and they said, you know, this is really interesting, but students still need to go through this process, right? Mm -hmm. You can tell them that they need to be kind. You can tell them that curiosity matters. You can tell them that they need to hold doors open for people, but this is the process, right? So my publisher came back and he and he said to me, he was like, "You need to put tips in here." And at the time, I said, I, was, I begrudgingly said, ah, "You know, you're ruining the part of this book." And then as I started writing, I thought he's absolutely right. He's absolutely yeah. right. Character matters, but let's let's talk about how this is the process. How do we take back control of this process? How do we release some of this pressure? and and be the decent human being that we talked about and all these recommendations and that I speak of, and yet, you know, do a good job with the application and and find a match, a college match that makes sense for us. Hmm. And so that was how the book, (laughs) that's how the book (laughs) happens.
2: I love this idea. That it's not an or, it's an and, right? Yeah. The, the practical things of, of doing work, of developing yourself and your athletic ability and your music ability and your writing ability, which you talk so passionately about, um, you're developing yourself as a student and, but you're developing your character and shaping who you are as a person and because you talk about it it's really so, so helpfully that when you as an admissions um, officer were sitting there looking at all of this, this pool of, of just all wonderfully talented folks, it wasn't just the tangible qualities of this AP versus, you know, this SAT score. It was these intangible things. And it, it really strikes me that those intangible things, you can't fake those, right? right? That's really from not what you do with the life, but how you live it. Was it, is that a fair way to describe it? That's a beautiful
1: way to describe it. And I think, you know, I, I talk a lot about how college admission is not the finish line, right? You're mm-hmm. going to have to go to college. And, you know, this is the cliche that we've heard a million times, but, you know, most of the students who are who are admitted to an Ivy League school will, half of them will graduate in the bottom half of their Ivy League school, right? And so I view high, sc- high school matters. Your senior mm-hmm. year of high school matters. And getting, you know, if you're admitted early decision and you find out December 15th that you're admitted to school of your choice... It doesn't mean that the next nine months you can slack off because you're going to end up a college freshman and you're going to have to go to classes and you're going to have to learn and develop relationships and you know and so for me like I, it would drive me crazy because I would see college being you know a prize. I'm going to say this again, but like college mm-hmm. was a prize, right? Like I got in, I did something right. Like they wanted me, and therefore you know I win. And the reality is that first of all. Yeah, if you got into a college terrific but don't forget this is a foundation it's a building block college is not the end when you graduate from college something else is going to happen, we are all on intellectual journeys and college is a stepping stone it's not a prize it's not a finish line. And in my experience the students frankly who made the most of high school, particularly senior year. ended up having the best experiences at college because they viewed it as such. It was just, you know, they wanted to go to high school. They wanted to learn for the sake of learning because they knew that if they didn't take French four and do well, high school, you know, senior year of high school, they needed to take French five. And so it was kind of a building block process.
0: Thanks for listening to Prep Talks. Today's episode is sponsored by the upcoming book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. The authors Dr. William Stixrud and Ned Johnson have 60 years combined experience talking to kids one-on-one, and in their latest book, they share new ways to handle specific and thorny topics. Things like delivering constructive feedback to kids, discussing boundaries around technology, anxiety from current events, and more. What Do You Say is a manual and a map that provides specific science-based guidance for communicating effectively with children, teens, and young adults about the topics that matter most. You can pre-order What Do You Say at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, or wherever you buy books.
2: Yeah, I like that, you know, the the, the part of the process of developing yourself rather than the checking off the list of the thing that gets me to the next thing that gets me to the next thing. Um, you know, along those lines, you talk a good deal about um, uh, authenticity and that, that it's hard to pin it down just what that means, but you, you all always knew it when you saw it and sort of a couple questions that come to mind from that, that it's, um, it, well, you knew, you knew it when you saw it. Um, and it may be hard to describe, but could you give an example of of what that looks like? And given that students and probably more likely their parents are reading the book, looking for how to strategize to, you know, maybe fake authenticity, right? What advice could you give them to about how to actually be genuinely authentic rather than, you know, trying too hard to a- appear that way?
1: Right. Yeah. And this is the double-edged sword, right? I'm writing a book to help people realize how to be authentic, which makes no sense. Right? <laughs> 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 you know Department of Ironic is, Studies. Right. Which is impossible. But I think the point I was trying to make is that in an application, we know many of these applications are coached. We know many of these applications receive outside help. But like when we read an essay, it was very hard to tell. It was very hard to tell which essays had been coached, which hadn't. Mm. Most essays we read were wonderful. <laughs> All right? mm. we, we, we didn't read a lot about essays. However, you know, we could tell in an entire application if things weren't adding up. Right. So we would see a beautifully written essay and then a short answer about their most significant extracurricular would be two sloppy sentences. And we'd say hmm, the writing style here is very different than the beautiful essay. Mm. But I think even more importantly, you know, I wouldn't I actually wouldn't say that we would know if an application, you know, if a student was authentically curious. However, right there would be echoes of similar themes coming from other parties. For example, teacher recommendations, right? A teacher might say, hey, this is the kid that may not have the the highest grade in the class, but he's the one that asks the most intellectually curious questions, right? We might see it in, I talk about this in the the book, but even an email address, right? Like, let's all drive electric cars at gmail.com would tell us something about the kid that he might not even realize he, he's, he's sharing with
2: us. <laughs> what was the email about the, uh, the breaking for hot moms? What I break was-
1: for yeah. hot moms. Yeah. And, and that's not even, I had to make it um, confident. Comp- I didn't use the real email address. Family friendly. I didn't want to identify the student, but you know, something so stupid like that, right? You don't, if you use a silly email address, that identifies you as, you know, I break for hot moms, like that's telling us just as much about you or more, I would argue about you than the big old personal statement. And so I think, you know, for, for me, we knew that people were getting a lot of help. We knew that this was a difficult process. And most importantly, we knew the distance traveled for students really varied, right? Hmm. From the underrepresented communities to those with lots of coaching. And our job is to try to read it holistically as almost like a jigsaw puzzle with all of these pieces to try to get the best picture of who this applicant would be on our college campus. Um, but you know, having not met them in person and just reading a paper application, I think you know things like recommendations, you know, could really help. Just again, echo um, you know the intangible qualities that we were also hoping, I'll say the end, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that the students would have in addition to the academic profiles.
2: And how does that logic extend to the importance of extracurricular activities?
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I, I think we're obsessed with the extracurricular resume. And I think it's because we, you know, th- there's so many rumors out there, right? You have to be well-rounded. You shouldn't be well-rounded. You should be the best nationally ranked chess player, right? You should be you know, someone who plays, you know, a strange instrument because, you know, there's so many rumors out there. And from where we sat, you know, we're reading so many applications. We're reading, you know, hundreds of applications a week. And when we get to that extracurricular page, (laughs) we're looking down the extracurricular page. We're not counting how many things you do. We're not, you know, sitting there saying, oh, but they don't have community service. Like, we don't have time for that. We're looking at it the way any of you would look at a resume for someone, you know, applying for a job. You know, we're we're, we're going through and we're saying, okay, what are they doing? Does it seem like this is relevant, or is are there echoes of this someplace else in the application? Right. So, if you say that you're National Honor Society president and nobody else mentions it, we're going to say, are you doing this just for the title, or have <laughs> you? Actually but,
2: I I love that you m- noted that you were National Honor Society okay. president in in high school and did and did nothing with that. Um, <laughs> that was something that I shared with you. I, I be- my 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 twin brother, who doesn't think I'm nice enough, was kind enough to vote for me for it to be national honor society president in high school. And then, I, if go. I did anything of import, I it's uh it's it's been lost to the time.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think you know the bottom line is we want students you know, to be doing something right. And we want them to, again, in the book, I say, we want you to explain to us what we're doing. Like anything counts as long as you can say, Hey, you know, I, you know, grow salamanders and I sell them to the kids on the street, whatever it is. Yeah. But, you know, at, at college, we have so many opportunities for students to be engaged. So we want students who are going to come take advantage of that. But I think to obsess over, Oh, I have to be national honor society president, or I have to check the community service box or, I'm not well-rounded enough. I mean, the bottom line is like, we're looking at this, like, okay, what do you do? And does it make sense? Where are we hearing? And like, like, let's keep moving, keep moving through that application.
2: Yeah. You say, say you know, that folks should do, kids should do extracurricular activities because they can, not because they should. And that those, those interests matter because they shape a person, not because they strengthen a resume. And I, and I, I just love that because it sure seems to me that we make a profound mistake when we give all the messages to, to kids in school that the most important outcome of, of high school is where they go to college that that, that four years of their lives are a kind of an addition for college yeah. rather than four years of developing themselves um, right. because as you, you know say you, you want do high school well is what's going to prepare you to do college well and will lead you to success in college and in your career and in life rather than just checking little boxes and I don't I just that's a point that I, I think you make so well, and that simply can't be made enough because we you know we. When I, I'm sort of fixated, as you know, from my work about stress and anxiety and what that does to developing brains. And in psychology, they talk about an internal locus of control versus an external locus of control. So external, I'm doing it for someone else's approval, versus right. internal because it, it, it matters to me, right? You know, the, the you know the, the salamanders are the. um right. Was it Backyard Berry Picking? Is that what you did? Yeah, <laughs> I have a student right now who's, uh, who, who set up during COVID um, basically hydroponic farm, yeah. right? And now he's, yeah. he's working at a summer camp and teaching all these kids to set up. a. And I'm like, and so, you know, and so that because he discovered this passion and he's got a really neat technical mind, he's been applying to major universities that have really strong agricultural pro- programs because that's what interests him, not because it looks good, because that's what that's what you know, jazzes him.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, gosh, if you ask me, I'm not sure I'd want to go back to my high school years, but if I was <laughs> given the opportunity to go back to my college years and just how how many things are available to you, right? Like improv, right? Mm-hmm. Like squash. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't have those opportunities now as a 42 year old woman living at <laughs> home. Right? I don't have all these free, you know. Hey, try out a radio station. You know, work on the radio station. Go, yeah, yeah. go you know, to the organic farm. And I think in high school, even though, you know, many high schools don't have the resources that these colleges do, there's still, right. so many opportunities that you'll never have again in your life. You'll never have the chance to sing in, in, in a choir, you know, a, a, for free and take a class or learn, learn all these things. And so- I
2: love that, that story. But was, I forget, was it Kate who ditched AP statistics um, to, take, to take up singing? You think over, yeah. the, over, over the lifetime, over your lifetime, which is going to bring you, which is going to add more to your life?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, and I think it it does make sense to me that students are sometimes afraid to try things that are graded because they are afraid that will ruin their GPA. Mm. And I'll argue, I mean, we would see students whose, you know, weakest grade was in a class that was um, something that was out of the ordinary for them. And as long as someone else or, you know, they would argue, hey, I took improv, (laughs) Right. I took <laughs> in improv class because I wanted to get out of my shell. Or it's even, frankly, better if we hear it from a counselor or a teacher that says, hey, this kid didn't get the highest grade in my class, but he took this class because he's always wanted to be an actor, right? You know, like, just mm-hmm. just allowing ourselves, providing that you still have the fundamentals of reading, writing, and arithmetic. You know, like, we should give ourselves the chance to take advantage of things while we can, because the real world, there aren't a lot of chances to, you know, Take a free acapella class.
2: I'm laughing at this. But I, my son is a is a is a, is de- declared de- himself a music major at college, uh, and my wife and I both did acapella in, in in college. And I was a couple years ahead of her and in an acapella group. Um, and so she somehow made a grievous judgment of error and thought that that I was somehow cool, <laughs> only because I was in this acapella group. And so she said yes to a first date, which was. I'm not sure good for her, but long, the best the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, <laughs> so I and so, yeah, I, you know, I studied economics somewhat listlessly, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah. we're more than just our more than just our grades and scores. Right. Oh, absolutely. Um, so circling back to a point we talked about, those intangible qualities that that throughout your book, it really starts and ends and all the way through about decency. And I, I want to point out for, for, for people, you know, you're listening to this, you can't see this. Um, Behind Becky are three um, what look like college flags, um, but rather than Harvard, Yale, Princeton, whatever, whatever, it's kindness, be a nice human, and curiosity. And I love these. This is m- much like Paul Tuft's work of, 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 of um, how to raise an adult, of those non-cognitive skill, skills of curiosity and optimism, you know, social awareness, so on and so forth. And I just, golly you know, you want, and I want, I think all of us who are parents and educators want our kids to develop themselves as much as they can, because, you know, if, if they, if they can go to college and persist and be successful, it's it's foundational to building, you know, their, their lives is good for them, for their families, for it's good for the whole bloody country to develop talent, but not if it's at the expense of our character. And so I just, I, I love this. And you end with a story about the frog, the kind of yeah. frog. Can you tell this? It was so lovely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I end with a story. I was at an event um, for prospective high school students and they were, um, they'd spent the evening, you know, trying to impress me as they should, because I was there to be impressed. Um, but I was tired and it was a rainy night and I had Valley parks. And long story short, um, one of the parking attendants basically uh, stopped in the middle of the parking lot. Well, all of these other students that I were with that were like, you know, walking to their cars and, you know, talking about what had happened at the event. And he stopped and picked up this tiny little frog that was about to be, you know, roadkill basically from one of their shoes and picked it up and walked it over to the side of the parking lot, dropped it off and came back. And when he came back, he was so apologetic that he was slow. And I just looked at him and I thought, oh my gosh, like you're the only kid that stopped to save that frog because everybody else was so hyper-focused on, you know, what they were doing. And I tell that story just because I I think, you know, I'm a mom now. I'm a mom of two toddlers. I wrote this book. You know, I can talk a lot of talk, but now I'm going to have to walk the walk myself. And (laughs) And I know the pressures of, you know, we all want our kids to have the best education. Like that's, that's natural. And students want to have the most opportunities. We want them to get jobs. We want them to live productive lives. And yet, you know, this year I was thinking a lot about who are the most quote unquote impressive people that I know personally, right? Like who do I admire? Who do I look up to in my community as people that I just look at and I think, wow, those are people that are doing it right. And it never has anything to do with their, their college degree. It never has really anything to do with their profession, right? It has to do with who they are as a person. And so I'm trying, you know, the reason I have these college pennants here is because I think it's important to remind ourselves, you know, again and again, it's, it's, it's okay to want to go to an Ivy league school. It's okay to want to get an education and have a job and have job opportunities. These are all good things, but at the end of the day, like what makes the most impressive humans are the, the character that we carry. And um, and I think that can quickly get lost. And in my career, you know, people would look at me and say, wow, you met the best and the brightest. And I would just argue the best are around the best and the brightest are around all of us. It's just, you know, what we're looking for and how we define the
2: best. Mm. And the best. It's such a good point. And you, and you make a point in the book that, that some parents say, you know, but the smart kids all go to Princeton. Yeah. And you make the point that well there's smart kids everywhere and i sometimes sort of riff on this with my high school students and work with that is there a difference between um on average the average student at umass amherst and students at amherst college on average yes but intra group Diversity is way more pronounced than intergroup, and since you're talking about really good people who are kind of the best of the best, our our, our mutual friend Jess Leahy, who is the top of her game, couldn't. I mean, I I, I know few people who are more just in, incredibly impressive, yes. and just. I mean, she's one of the kindest, most thoughtful, generous human beings on the planet, and I keep, you know, asking myself, you know, had she gone to Amherst rather than UMass Amherst, and I'm not, I don't want to give either of the schools a hard time, would it made a lick of difference? Right, right, right. You know the, that 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 college is this process. You know, high school is this process of developing yourself, and college is another four years of developing yourself. And and you that you end one of your chapters with the point that every college has the potential to change a student's life. And so I just, I just, (laughs) you know, what's the line, Uh, you know, all but a man's reach should exceed his grasp or or what are the, or what are the heavens for? Right. And so perfectly fine to want to go to Dartmouth, but to a want versus a have to. Absolutely.
1: Mm. Absolutely. And the world is changing that. I mean, I mean, there's all this talk, you know, you know, Silicon Valley doesn't need college anymore. You know, like the world is changing. And so I do think colleges are sustainable. I think they serve a purpose for me. They opened incredible doors, but again, what's, what's our end goal here. And the, and the point is there is no end goal. It's a journey. It's our journey Mm -hmm. and what we make of the resources available to us.
2: I love it. I love it. Well, the wonderful, wonderful book I lied to, I howled, by the way, when I saw valedictorians at the gate. I don't know who, who, who came up with that title, by the way. It's my it's,
1: husband. And he reminds me every day that he came up with the best title ever for a book. It's pretty
2: darn good. It's pre- and, for, and just to give a hard time to any parents of valedictorians who are, are listening to this, the research on valedictorians is quite clear that 10 years after high school, they're no more successful than people who weren't the top. And so there's, I mean, and and I I guess I want to put a point on this, that it's perfectly, it's, it's great. And it's healthy for people to want to go to Dartmouth or another Ivy League school, bring your calamine lotion, I'm teasing, you know, and it's great to want to be the top and top, top, top. It's simply that we don't want the message be, to be that you have to, that you have to go here to have a great life because it's simply it's simply not the case. So I love this uh, valedictorians at the gate standing out, getting in and staying sane while applying to college. A beautiful book that really balances both the, the really practical nuts and bolts of how to do this process well from someone who was in this business for an awfully long while, front row seat, while at the same time talking about these other values that all of us as parents know are just and even more important than where we go to college of how to be a good, decent, kind, curious human being. Becky Munster Sapke. Becky, it is a delight to read this book and it is a delight to have this conversation with you.
1: Ned, this was my pleasure and I learned so much from you and I you get an A plus in my book. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Love it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ned. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.